He did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord. That's pretty much an overarching description of this king. This is a king who has no love for the Lord and no interest in following the Lord. Okay, that's general. Well, then we get a little bit more specific. He's not like his father David. Who was he like? He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. So here's a king in the south who's following the behavior of the kings of the north. What were the kings of the north known for? Do you remember that line that gets repeated after virtually every northern king? They did evil all the days of their life, but there's another line that's more specific. He walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's said about just about every northern king because Jeroboam was the very first king of the north who first introduced idolatry into the land. He was the king who brought in the polluted, corrupted worship and that idolatry would plague the northern kingdom for the rest of their existence. Well, now we have a southern king who is also adopting idolatry. We have a king in the south who's worshiping false gods, okay? How bad was his idolatry? Well, the answer is it's, it's as bad as it could possibly be. What, how, how deep, how low did his idolatry sink? Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. What does that mean? It means he engaged in child sacrifice. That's what it means. Now, remember, this is a king of Israel doing this. Now, if you go back to last week, we met a king last week in the north named uh, Menahem who was doing the sorts of things that even pagans blushed at. When there was a a city in Israel that rebelled, he went in, ripped open the stomachs of pregnant women to kill their unborn babies. It was the sort of things that that even pagans thought was going a little too far. And you have a king of Israel who was doing it. Well, now we're seeing the same thing in this southern king. You You have God's people, kings of God's people, who are doing the sorts of things that only the worst of the pagan nations would do. And the history to to child sacrifice was before Israel came into the promised land, quite a few of the tribes in in this area would offer child sacrifices to their gods. One of the the primary gods they would do it to was a god named Molech. And they would offer their children in fire as a sacrifice to Molech with the hopes that, that Molech would be appeased and in turn he would make their lives better. So they would give their children to be killed with the hopes that that would mean Molech would would give them rain next year and they would have better crops and they would have healthier families and more prosperity and things would go better. So just I'll give you a quick description of how it would work. The the drawings and the statues of Molech are he would would be kneeling or seating and his arms would be stretched out in front of him like this. And they would normally be metal bronze statues that were hollow on the inside. And what they would do is they would, they would get fires burning inside of these statues and, and underneath them usually too until the statue was white hot. And then they would put these infants on the outstretched arms of Molech as they, they burned to death. They would, they, they would beat drums and play instruments to try to drown out the screams of the babies as all of this was happening. 
And they're doing all of these horrible things as a way of trying to satiate their gods so their gods will make their lives better. And, and what was God's attitude toward that? He addresses it in the Bible. We won't read it now, but Leviticus 20, before Israel goes into the promised land, God warns them about that very thing. And what he tells them is if, if any Israelite engaged in that sort of thing, they were to be executed. He, he detested it. They weren't allowed to ignore it. They weren't allowed to overlook it. Anyone who got involved in child sacrifice, they were to be executed. That was, that was God's attitude toward it. And I know, I've got to make a connection. I know it's very easy to turn our nose up and think those barbaric people, I can't believe they would, they would do that. Our culture's not any better, right? They might have done this to bronze statues in front of fires, and we might do it in sanitized hospital rooms, but it's the same thing. We, we offer as a culture almost a million unborn babies every year on our own altars, and we do it for the same reason they do. We do it with the hopes that offering this sacrifice will, will give me more freedom, or it'll let me pursue a better career, or it'll give me time to make more money. It's no different, and, and, and God's attitude toward it is no different. Now, I wanna be clear, that's not to say that this is the unpardonable sin, it's not. Where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. We're thankful that Jesus didn't just go to the cross to take our quote unquote little sins as if those exist. He went to the cross to take all of our sin, including the worst of it. So we have the promise, no matter what we've done, if we'll call our sin what it is and look to Jesus, there is forgiveness and there is cleansing. But I wanna be clear, God's attitude toward this sort of thing is the same today as it was 3,000 years ago when it was happening in Israel. Okay, so we have a king in Israel who is offering his own children in the fire to try to appease pagan gods. And did you notice what else it said? I said a minute ago that you had lots of these kings in Judah who allowed the people to keep worshiping at the high places. But did you notice how it's a different level with this king? And he sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. Do you see what's different? So with Ahaz, he doesn't just allow the people to keep the high places and keep worshiping on these idolatrous sites. He does it himself. And it adds, he's worshiping under every green tree. Those of you who have been here for this whole study will remember that, that that's where they would go. They would, these different groves to worship the fertility gods and the fertility goddesses. And that worship under every green tree was usually involving prostitutes, male and female prostitutes, where they would engage in all sorts of uh, lewd sexual activity as a means of trying to connect with their gods. And you have kings now, a king in Judah, who is doing all of that stuff. Second Chronicles 28 gives a little more information about what this king was doing. I might not have it. Here we go, Second Chronicles 28. This is describing Ahaz. For he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, here's something else he did, and made molded images for the Baals. He burned incense in the valley of the son of Hinnom and burned his children in the fire according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. So in addition to all that other stuff, he's actually overseeing molded images of Baal being made. He's enticing 
the people in Judah to worship false gods. So, so every sort of idolatry you can imagine, Ahaz is not only engaged in, he's promoting among the people. And did you notice this last, uh, two things. Notice where this is happening. This is happening in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And that actually is still prevalent in the New Testament. The, the New Testament, the Greek word for the, the valley of Hinnom, not that you can read my handwriting, but is Gehenna. Gehenna is a word, Gehenna means valley of Hinnom. And it's a, it's a word that comes up several times because what Gehenna was is it became the town of Jerusalem's trash dump. Because the idea was that they realized child sacrifice had happened in that valley. So it was like they viewed that site as too polluted to ever do anything there again, to ever build anything. So all they could do in the valley of Hinnom was to turn it into the, the landfill. So when Gehenna is mentioned in the New, this is the, the reference that's generally being made. Let me mention one more thing. Notice how it adds that he was doing the kind of abominations for which the Lord had cast out all the other nations. In other words, why had God cast out the nations who were in the land before Israel got there? Because they were committing these same sorts of sins. And God judged them by kicking them out of the land. So now that the people of Israel are doing these sins, what do you think God might do? This is the big spoiler alert, right? It's letting us know where this is going. So now you have God's people committing the very sins for which God had kicked the other tribes out, which has given us a hint that that's what's eventually going to happen to them as well, that they're going to face the judgment of God by being sent off into exile. Okay, that's Ahaz. Let's, let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 5. Then Reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to make war. And they besieged Ahaz, but could not overcome him. At that time, Reason, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath. And then the Edomites went to Elath and dwell there to this day. So, you remember how with his father, I made the point that Israel and Syria, this coalition, started putting pressure on Judah. Well, what happens now under Ahaz's reign is Assyria and, excuse me, Syria and Israel now fully invade Judah. And we find out in Isaiah, the reason they're invading is they're trying to remove Ahaz from the throne so that they can replace Ahaz with a king of their liking, a king who will follow them in their foreign policy decision. And so this is a brutal battle. Again, Second Chronicles gives some more information. And we're told that while, while Ahaz and Judah don't fall in this battle, there are massive casualties. So scores of Judean soldiers are killed. Lots of people are taken hostage. Um, at the same time that uh, Israel and Syria invade from the north, Edom invades from the south. And Second Chronicles tells us the Philistines invade from the west. So you have Judah being attacked from virtually every direction so that we're told here, Elath is taken. Elath was the southernmost city Judah controlled. It was way down on the uh, Red Sea. It was a port city. It was crucial to their trade. And now Elath is lost. That means the economy of Judah is going to be in, in bad shape. So Judah's decimated. So what should King Ahaz do? What does God call all of these kings to do? What does God constantly in the Old Testament call his people to do? He constantly calls them to repentance, right? Just, just call out to the Lord for mercy. This is David this morning. I, this poor man cried out to the Lord and he heard me. 
So if Ahaz will humble himself before God and cry out, God promises that he'll hear them. So Ahaz needs to turn to God and call out. I mentioned Isaiah a second ago. Remember, the prophet Isaiah's ministry is unfolding at the same time that all of this is happening in 2 Kings. And um, in Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah goes out and confronts King Ahaz. He goes out to see this very king during this attack, and he tells King Ahaz to trust the Lord, to look to God. I'll just read you a section of that. Here's verses 7 through 9. This is, thus says the Lord. This is Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz. Thus says the Lord. This, he's talking about the invasion. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim. Ephraim is the northern kingdom. That's the kingdom of Israel. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. The head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son, if you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. So what, what God is doing here is he is assuring King Ahaz that these two countries who are invading him, they're not going to have victory. In fact, within 65 years, God is going to bring both of those countries to an end. They're going to be wiped out. And so what Ahaz needs to do is he needs to trust God. He needs to call out to the Lord. Because if he won't call out, if he won't believe he won't be established. That means if he will not trust in the Lord, his kingdom is going to stay on shaky ground. That's Isaiah's call to it. Well, Ahaz does not believe. He doesn't turn to the Lord to help him. Who does he turn to to help him? Well, look back in 2 Kings. Pick up in verse 7. It says, So Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, saying, I am your servant and your son. Come up and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And Ahaz took the silver and gold that was found in the house of the Lord and in the treasuries of the king's house and sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. So the king of Assyria heeded him. For the king of Assyria went up against Damascus and took it, carried its people captive to Kir, and killed reason. So, so what, who does he turn to instead of turning to the Lord? He turns to Assyria, right? The big kid on the block. He, it's like he's found himself a new savior. He's not going to look to God to save him. He's going to look to Tiglath-Pileser to save him. In fact, the language that he uses here is, is striking. Notice what he says to Tiglath-Pileser. I am your servant and your son. Now, what's striking there is throughout the Old Testament... The kings of Judah, the kings in the line of David, are referred to as the sons of Yahweh. If you go back and read the Davidic covenant in uh, 2 Samuel 7. I might even have a verse of that. Yeah, 2 Samuel 7, 14. This is God making his covenant to David about the kings in David's line. He says, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him like a father would do. I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men. So God says to David, he's making this promise to David and his sons who will sit as kings. And God says, I will be a father to them. So the kings in the line of David are the sons of Yahweh and the servants of Yahweh. But what does this king call himself? 
He's going to be the son of Tiglath-Pileser and the servant of... T In other words, it's like he is taking the covenant that God had made with Israel's kings and he is wadding it up and he is throwing it away. He is not going to trust in God to save him. He has found what he thinks is a better savior. Of course, the problem is that uh, Tiglath-Pileser is an expensive savior. And so what does Tiglath-Pileser require? He has to send him a huge sum of money. Well, he's just been decimated by war. Where's he going to get the money? The place where these kings get the money over and over again. He goes into the temple and he takes every bit of precious metal from the different articles they used in the temple that he can find and he ships it north to Tiglath-Pileser. And, and it works. Tiglath-Pileser does what he wanted to do anyway and he invades. So you've got, you've got Israel and Syria, their armies down south fighting Judah. And so Assyria moves in from the north and conquers uh, Syria, they defeat the capital of Damascus, conquers most of the northern territory of Israel. So, so Tiglath, Ahaz looks to Tiglath-Pileser to save him, and it works, doesn't it? 